Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. Dr. Sunita Puri is the Director of Palliative Medicine at University of Southern California's Hospital and Cancer Center. She's also the author of That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, which is really well known in the medical and grief communities. I'm telling you, not since Saleka Jawad's book, Between Two Kingdoms, have I experienced such poignant and elegant writing that captures the essence of the author's experience so expertly. Sunita documents the life events that led her to the palliative path, the challenges that many of those in her position face, and offers tools to help readers better communicate with our doctors about what matters most to us, which is a very personal thing. Sunita and I chatted about the book, why she wrote it, where the meaning was for her, the struggles of leading a department that requires nonstop justification to patients, their families, and even other medical professionals before any of the real work actually starts, and what Sunita does to take care of herself mentally, emotionally, and spiritually so her job doesn't rob her of her own joy. It's Sunita Puri for No Time to Waste. Sunita Puri, I am over the moon that we get to talk. Um, when I had a conversation with, uh, uh BJ Miller, who was on the, the podcast recently. Um, he said, you know, what? I, I don't know if you know, I, I have someone that I think you should talk to who would make a great guest. And he's like, her name is Sunita. And I was like, Sunita Puri. And I was like, <laughs> I was like that good night. I was like, uh, yes, yes, I would love to talk to her. Um, so I just want to say, you know, uh, time is our most precious commodity, right? More valuable than than money um, or power. And I just want to thank you to start for your time for being willing. Thank you so much for having me, Allison. And it's equally an honor to be talking to you. That's not accurate, but thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you're the medical director of the palliative unit at uh, University of Southern California's Medical Center, um, Cancer Center. Um, I suspect your uh, schedule is eh, probably pretty, I don't know, pr pretty busy. And the first question I just want to know is, why did you say yes to this? To the podcast? Yeah, because I feel like I'm sure someone like you is getting requests like this all the time. Saying no is something that hopefully you delegate someone else to do, um, <laughs> right? But but why? why? Why did you say yes to this um, with, with your busy schedule? Well, I actually think that when I'm seeing patients and kind of doing my work every day, that's an enormous gift. But I think in our country, there's a larger conversation around death and suffering and making meaning of the time we have. That is a relatively diminished conversation. And so 
I very much enjoy talking to anyone who will talk to me, but especially someone like you who's got an incredible story and a wide reach, because I think the more I have these conversations and offer whatever I can in terms of food for thought, then perhaps whoever is listening might look slightly differently at what are the challenging subjects of death and suffering and mortality and making meaning in the lives we have. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned palliative care. Um, I, uh, in talking to BJ, he said, we've got a branding problem um, because, uh, you know, people either don't know about it, they don't know what it is, or they confuse it with hospice. Um, so I would love to just start off, I'm on this quest to educate people. Um, can you share what palliative care means to you and sort of what that job entails to help educate everyone out there who's like, Pallia, what? Like, what are they talking about? Certainly. So, and I'm glad we're starting with that question. So palliative care is a subspecialty of medicine where we are focusing on people's quality of life through two main mechanisms. One treating symptoms like cancer pain or nausea from chemotherapy, shortness of breath from heart failure, all of the sort of effects of disease that get in the way of people's everyday lives and doing what they like to do and what brings them meaning. And the other thing that we do is help people and their families and loved ones and also their medical teams so that we can make sure that the medical care we're doing is actually serving a goal that the person themselves finds important. So it's shifting away from saying, you have cancer, we've tried two lines of chemo, and now we're going to do the third without having a conversation about what that means, what the implications are for the life of the person getting that third round of chemo, and whether or not that's something that they would want knowing what that third round might look like. So kind of broadly speaking, I deal with suffering every day. And it's the physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering that comes with an illness that's a serious one. I think unlike a lot of misconceptions, you can get palliative care right alongside your other medical care. So I think people sometimes think it's a choice between getting, quote unquote, real medical treatment and getting, quote unquote, palliative treatment. The two coexist, and I think that's so important because the people who are getting those treatments may have symptoms and concerns that are not being addressed, and chemo is not going to treat someone's existential distress. So having both together is really the standard of care in medicine, and that's been slow for doctors all over the country to adopt, but it is kind of my mission to try to get that to be just what people will come to expect when they get sick. Right. And your book, which came out in 2019 that I, I want to talk about, um, is called uh, That Good Night, um, uh, Medicine, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. And uh, just I'm going to 
read some quotes back to you, if you don't mind, that had a, an impact on me. Y- you wrote, this book is my humble attempt to inspire tough but necessary conversations in hopes of easing the suffering associated with the silence around mortality. Well before the light fades, we can bring the same dignity and purpose to our deaths as we journey in, as we each journey into our own good night. Um, and to me, for those that haven't read the book, and I will put the link, the direct link um, to get the book uh, in the show notes, you know, it really is, you know, yes, it's part memoir and, and we get to know uh, uh, Sunita or Dr. Puri here um, fairly well as she sort of documents stories from her childhood, um, you know, being raised by uh, her father, a teacher, right, and uh, mother, an anesthesiologist. Um, the challenges that brought when you came back to them um, and said, you know, I, I think I'm going to go into palliative care when when medicine was not even um, really part of your game plan um, through, I think, your undergrad at Yale and, um, oh, yeah, the Rhodes Scholarship um, to Oxford, both in what modern art and anthropology and modern history. <laughs> right? I mean, what? And then then you go to medical school and then you come back to your parents and and say, "Yeah, I'm I'm going to go into palliative care." Um which I mean, again, I I I don't want to give all the spoilers away, but um I I would highly recommend the book um just to learn more about uh Sunita's upbringing and some of the challenges that she faced in uh, choosing this path. Um, but I also love the book because it really frames up and helped me to see as a terminal cancer patient, the other side and the book essentially outlines the dilemma, right. Of modern medicine when it comes to end of life care because medicine's goal sort of historically, and even in your early residency, right, um, has been, okay, our goal is to keep someone alive, like as long as possible, no matter what the cost, no matter what, like, at, you know, it's about just adding days on of life. And it's like, well, wait, <laughs> it, isn't, isn't it more complex than that now? Right? Um, yeah. Can't we make way for the gray? Aren't we, you know, don't we care more about relieving suffering versus extending days or weeks or years, you know, with a suboptimal quality of life based on what that person cared about, you know? And you you just did such a, a lovely job of helping me from the patient perspective to, to see what it's like for, for you on the other side. Um, but I'll be honest, uh, it, it, it was a lot for me at times because of, I think how, uh, uh, how real, Right. And you were very descriptive about a lot of the patients that you worked with and what their end of life or end of days looked like. And mm-hmm. 
man, that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> well, I mean, I first of all, thank you so much for reading the book and for you know being willing to go there, given what you're going through. Oh, and there you have you're yeah. showing the book and all of your uh, yes, I'm holding it. Up. Yeah, because I wanted to like, you know, I have like impermanence here. I have life after here. I have faith equals acceptance question mark. I have realized not living, no time to waste. Yeah, all things I want to talk about. We yeah. as long as we have a couple hours. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but you're right. You know, I I think the best writing and the books that have always kind of moved me are those stories that are not the doctor is the hero who fixes everything all the time, because that's not real life. Real life is that we are doctors, but not magicians. We're not God. We don't have crystal balls. We deal the best we can with what we're seeing before us. But the stories that I've experienced never end the way I wish they would. Sometimes they do, but I felt like in order to kind of represent what happens in my day to day and to do the stories of my patients justice, I couldn't present this as a beach read. And I kind of always joke about that. People are like, I'm going to read your book. I'm like, yeah, it's real beach read. You know? <laughs> Take it to Santa Monica. You're like Cosmo just uh, <laughs> named it uh, book of the week. <laughs> exactly. Get all your trip tips for attracting a boyfriend. In this yeah. Book. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I felt that it was really just incumbent on me as the narrator as the one whose lens I'm giving to the reader to take them through this journey that that needed to be an unfiltered lens. It needed to be a lens that kind of looked very directly and clearly at what I was seeing to allow room for all perspectives, because as you said, you know, there can be one person that an entire team is treating, but if you ask every single person on that team, the oncologist, the nurse, the physical therapist, the palliative care doctor, the social worker, they may have five different takes on the same situation. And so trying to present these stories as kaleidoscopic and not simple was absolutely the agenda in this book to allow people to draw their own conclusions. I did not want to come in there and say, this is how you, the reader, should feel about this patient who I lost, who died in what I would consider a very bad way. I'm going to give you the scene and give you my take on it and flesh every person here out to be a three-dimensional human. And I want you to make the meaning of the story as you will. Because I think when you're writing about something as complex as mortality, no reader is going to want to read you if you're trying to make it one dimensional and say, this is the only way to think about death. This is the only way to think about mortality because those two subjects are the center of pretty much every religious and spiritual philosophy. They're the center of so much art, writing, movies, you name it. So there's not one take on it. And I wanted to be transparent of that. I, I would rather tell you some ugly truths than some pretty lies. 
that's 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 a good one. Take that one to the bank. I don't know if you've used that one before, but that's a good one. I'm not someone who subscribes to any one religion, um, mm-hmm. right? But I could see how, uh, and and many times you gave you gave examples of um, when there was friction with the the family. Um, you know, sometimes or maybe oftentimes it was you know, waiting for a miracle. Um, God's gonna, God's gonna save my boy. Um, he, you know, made it through four years ago and he's going to do it again, even though he's been on basically life support and a vegetative state for, you know, two years. Um, I'm like, how could anyone not empathize with or not kind of side, um, Mm -hmm. with the palliative care and, the choice to to try and alleviate suffering as opposed to extending someone's life, even if they don't even have a life, right, yeah. at the benefit of their loved ones. Um, I, you know, I but what I was just thinking was, well, maybe I guess we could give we could think about an example of of someone who is waiting for God or or whatever God they believe in and and saying, hey, I. I believe in miracles and the miracle's going to happen. Do you still encounter people who are resistant to your care when it comes to their loved ones? So resistance definitely. And I think some of the resistance comes from a misunderstanding of what we do. I'll give you an example just yesterday and this has nothing to do with religion but I met a man with an with advanced cancer who had been referred by his oncologist for help with pain control. So I was talking to him about, you know, he was telling me where he has pain, and I was explaining to him the different types of pain that cancer causes and how we use different medicines to treat different types of pain. We don't just load people up with morphine. Um, it's more nuanced than that. But for him, I actually felt that a medicine like morphine would be really helpful for one component of his pain. And we were talking about it, and as about 20 minutes in, he stopped me and he said, you know, I could tell something was not clicking for him. So I'm glad he said this out loud. He said, are you, are you giving me this medicine because you think I don't have long to live? And so that is one of many kind of misconceptions and latent resistances, I guess, to the work is this idea that if we're involved and we suggest even just a certain type of pain med, that somebody must be near the end of life. And I think no matter how much you explain it to people, sometimes I think there's a difference between you and you explaining it and somebody really wanting to be open to hearing it because so many screens are in the place, their own fears and anxieties, the fears and anxieties of their oncologists who often do not know how to explain what palliative care is or why they're making a referral. And that was the case with that patient as well, that he had no idea why he was seeing me. But you could tell from the moment I was in the room with him that there was a lot of anxiety and fear. And I think that that operates on the doctor side, too, that I have been in a number of situations where I'm only called when people perceive there's, quote unquote, nothing left to do. 
because they fear that if we're called earlier, we're going to try to convince the patient to quote unquote give up. So when we talk about resistance, I think I fight resistance or maybe not fight, but I encounter resistance sometimes from patients and families, but a lot from colleagues in medicine. And that kind of fighting battle on two fronts and the kind of constant trying to 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 pr- help people to convince people that what you do is legitimate is a very exhausting part of practicing palliative care. So there are certainly uh. folks who are very religious who think that miracles will happen no matter what the body is showing us. Mm-hmm. But I find that that resistance is much lower than the resistance to what it means to need palliative care in the first place. I'm thinking about the assumptions that I'm making right now to anyone listening, that they understand what palliative care is, um, but they may not be able to think about, well, give me an example of when this palliative care stuff would come into play. Can you just share like the most straightforward, easy example? Totally. So, you know, I'll give you an example of a patient of mine who has since passed, but he was in his 20s and got diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer that was stage four from the beginning. I started seeing him from the time of diagnosis. So his oncologist was treating him. I was treating his pain and getting to know him. And every time he came in for chemo, I saw him as well. And we attended to keeping his spirits up or, you know, caring for his spirits no matter where they were, treating his pain, helping him to spend good time with his family and his dogs. And our care continued until he died two years after diagnosis. And so that's kind of the best example I can give that we were, our team was a member of the whole care team from the beginning. We were not talking about hospice until it became very obvious that hospice was a choice he could make. He didn't make that choice at the time we started talking about it, but he eventually did. And he told me the conditions under which he would consider hospice. And once those conditions were met and we had that roadmap, then there were no surprises when hospice was was the choice. And I think that that's a good example because that's really how it should be. There's no way that one doctor or the oncology team or the heart failure team or whoever can attend to all of the precious aspects that comprise a human being living with an illness. And that's how I see it. You're living with an illness. I don't see it as you're dying from an illness. I'm not dying. (laughs) I'm not dying. I might have stage four cancer, but I'm not dying yet, man. We're living. I'm definitely living. And we are all living with something that may not be taking our life but it may be consuming large parts of our well-being. So we're all going through something and we're all going to have a terminal illness. But the way we see it in palliative is you're living with that. We're not here to make you give up on treatment. We're here to be there from the beginning. Right. 
And that's what happened. I mean, with me personally, um, when I got the terminal diagnosis, because I was stage four in April, but they were like, you still might live out your normal life if we cleared out everything from the brain and we cleared out everything from um, the chest. And but then that was not what happened. And the cancer came back and it was like very fast growing and angry. Um, And in August of 2020, that's when I was given the terminal diagnosis and connected immediately with the palliative care um, uh, services that were uh, partnered with my cancer center. If anybody wants more information, like listen to the previous episode um, with BJ Miller, because, you know, we talked about the kind of care and services. It's not just medication. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I explained in that episode, like when I was introduced to my palliative care nurse, Celia, who was also a guest on the podcast. So you should listen to that if you want to learn more. Um, She just, you know. I didn't understand. I didn't understand what palliative was. I just know I got connected to like yet another person that I had to meet with and who had to come by my house, which was weird. Um, And she showed up at my house and she basically was like, I'm, I'm a new member on your team. That's going to have your back like till the end. And I was like, and what I learned was that, all she wants to do is care for me in, you know, she obviously she is a nurse um, and can write scripts for the first time in almost three years going through this process as a cancer patient. I was like, I felt seen. It's like a spiritual hug. It's, you know, it's like, Oh, I just feel so warm and cozy. Um, even though it's 90 degrees out. Um, and I have never experienced that in any sort of care scenario. Going back to the book, you know, again, me understanding a little bit more about what goes on in the lives of, of, of doctors like you, you know, you detailed what a day might look like in those early years, mornings in the hospital, right? sometimes or frequently coming up against families who are fully resisting the reality of their loved one's impending death, sometimes bringing more suffering upon them, which is heartbreaking. Afternoons, you talked about driving around LA and your region to visit patients in their home where uh, lack of financial resources or not having family to take care of them make the suffering difficult to, to ease, you know, um, what do your days look like now? Um, and do you have any new resources that you're able to lean on? So, um, now I direct our team and it's only based in the hospital and in our outpatient clinics. So right now I don't get to do home visits, which I really miss, Our team is comprised of other physicians, um, a social worker and a nurse practitioner. On a typical day when I'm in the hospital, um, 
we kind of wait for referrals from other teams to come in. So sometimes that's heart failure. I see a lot of patients in the intensive care unit, both at the cancer center and at our main hospital. So I cover two different hospitals. Um, and when I get a referral for a patient, I ask the team what specifically I can help with because it's like when you have um, a heart issue and your kidneys start failing, they'll call the kidney specialist, but they'll say, our question is whether or not this person should get dialysis now or later or whatever their question is. So for us, you know, they call us and pretty typically I'll have like a 10 to 12 minute discussion where most of what I'm doing is listening to the other person, whether it's a resident or a fellow or someone at my level who's an attending, they're almost like thinking through the whole situation, trying to figure out what they need from me. So it's not as clear cut as this person has a bad heart and now their kidneys are failing. It's that it's more like this person has had, you know, a heart failure for several years. He's now on this or that machine and dialysis, and we're not sure what we're doing, and we're not sure where to go from here, and we're not sure how to talk to the family, or we have talked to the family, and the family says, quote unquote, we want everything done. And we as a team don't know how to navigate that. So that's what I call, what we call goals of care conversations is the major reason I'm called. And that generally means in the hospital that someone is critically ill and that the team has is struggling with talking to someone about what's realistic. And unfortunately, because we get hardly any training in medical education, about how to talk to people about these situations, sometimes I am kind of the outsourcing for communication. And so I have these meetings with the family because a lot of patients are in the ICU. When I get called, I don't even have the ability to talk to them. So I sit with the family. I sit with the team. I make it a requirement that the people from the primary team whether it's the cardiology team or oncology, whoever is primarily taking care of the patient has to be at that meeting. Different palliative doctors do it differently, but I do that for two reasons. One, they're never going to learn how to talk to people unless they see it done by someone who knows what they're doing. And number two, the family needs to see that we are all part of the same care team that it's not palliative off on the side and everybody else together. And so a pretty typical conversation will be about what a family knows or what a patient knows is going on with their health. Because you'd be surprised the number of times where I may know someone's cancer is incurable, but they think it's curable. And so the first place before we talk about anything is making sure the facts that I know are what they know. And so we start there and then we talk about, like, if I have to correct what they know, sometimes that can be the end of the conversation if it's emotionally just such a shock. Usually that's not the case. And then we kind of talk about what we're doing right now medically for them 
and what constitutes getting better and what constitutes getting worse. And then we talk about, given this is where we are, what do you think your loved one would say if he or she were listening to this conversation? And the great tragedy that I see time and again in my work these days, Allison, is that people have not had these discussions with the, with the people they love. So the emotional burden crisis, really, of trying to guess what your loved one would want is significant. And so a lot of the support that I offer families is just navigating that uncertainty. Personally, I think palliative care is all about navigating uncertainty. But for the family, that particular type of uncertainty is sometimes unbearable because they're the ones that will have to live with the consequences of their choices. And so I think the more that people can have these discussions, even if they're theoretical at first, about what their loved one would want if they're so sick that they can't speak for themselves, I think that would be a huge gift to everyone in their families. And usually I'll do, it depends on the day, but anywhere from like two to six such meetings a day. Oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, how, how do you be incredibly effective at your job in that you are educated on your patients, you are present with them and their families when you have a meeting, um, that you are able to give and, and give and give, Where? how are you taking care of yourself, right? In the book, you talked about how, at least in the early days, you would take your white coat and you would leave it in your car or put it in your trunk when you got home as a way to have a ritual that says, I am no longer at work now. Do you still do that? And is there anything else like how, like, how do you, how do you hold on to all this and then wear it loosely though? So I think that kind of how I've dealt with this over the years has been kind of a fluctuating process. Right now, I think that I really try not to let myself think too much about what I'm seeing when I get home. I think that it it might sound heartless or impossible because, you know, these are human beings facing a tremendous amount of suffering. But I think if I hold that and can't let it be, then I can't come back and help anybody else. And I think because I'm at a teaching institution, there's the suffering of the patient and the family and the team, but I'm also constantly surrounded by medical students, residents, fellows, people who are learning how to do this, and I'm tending to their emotions as well. So it's a lot, and unless I can just leave it at work, it becomes too much at home. I box several times a week. I meditate every wait, day. Wait, wait, like, like you box? Yes. Wraps and gloves? Yeah. That's rad. And now I have a little bicep. <laughs> uh, so, let me see it. Let me see it. Whoa, <laughs> that's awesome. Little bicep. <laughs> I love that you're doing boxing class. 
I took it up. Good for you. I want to do butter. And I, you know, he, I have a great coach who trains people in the park. Um, I go at 6 a.m. three times a week. I start my morning that way. I pray and I meditate every day. I check in a lot with my brother and a few close friends who are also in medicine, just about the insanity of some of the stuff that happens. I write a lot. I talk to my mentor. So I try to kind of shoulder everything that I see by doing some physical activity, spiritual stuff, and also just like relying on my network. It's not the sort of thing that I think a lot of people can really stomach. And so I've had to learn how can I be self-sufficient in doing the job and going about the rest of my life, but it is not easy. And when, and the biggest frustration at work is the constant relentless need to justify why our team's work is important. And that is the thing that burns me out more than any, more than all of the stories of tragedy that I see. It is this reckoning around why our work is vital and standard of care. That- I can be your, your living testimonial. What can I do? <laughs> How can I help? That's what I said to PJ. I'm trying. The great thing is, is I've got, uh, I've got now like a, a kind of uh, a little gaggle of people who all have the same objective, like get this get get this conversation out into the light like let's start talking about it as a society which it's gotten better because of all of the grief and loss with the pandemic it's forced forced kind of the world to confront their mortality in ways that you know we haven't seen in our lifetimes like all these people want the same thing right now how can how, like I don't know how can I how can I help can I help in any other way <laughs> I think that I actually do have some ideas on maybe the ways we can collaborate which we can talk about outside of the podcast but I do think that a really powerful part of making palliative care more mainstream has to come from patients and families there has to be a demand for it. And I think that between people not really knowing what our field is and what we do, and then not knowing really the scientific studies to support our effectiveness, I think that's kind of a lethal combination. And so, you know, I try to do my part by writing and speaking and doing what I can, but it feels like it's a very small drop in a much vast more vast ocean of things that need to happen. So I think that's kind of the revolution that needs to happen. I have one last question. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, You talk in the book after I think Dave that, you know, if you were told that you had a limited time left and you evaluated your life at that point, that, you realized I I would not be doing the things that I'm doing right now if I knew that. Right. Um, No time to waste is, you know, all about accepting or confronting that mortality as a, as an, as an inevitable reality Um, crafting a life without regret in 24 hour increments and then maximizing moments. Right. Um, 
when you kind of think about that now, have you made changes in your life that would cause you to answer that that question now differently? Um, I think that the big thing that I've tried to do a lot is just cultivate more gratitude for what I do have and not think about the things that have been upsetting or the people who have let me down or made my days really difficult. I think that if I were, if I got really sick, I think there's no doubt in my mind that I would do writing full time from that point. And I think, you know, the tension between my deep love of writing and storytelling and the work I do every day, I think they're complementary because, and we didn't really talk about this, but I think the language of what I have to deal with every day um, and making sure that I am both giving people language with which to express their needs and wants more thoughtfully and understanding the language that they are using to express their needs and wants. I think that that ability comes, my doctoring ability in that regard comes entirely from me being a writer and a reader. And so I see the two careers as really kind of intertwined, but if I got so sick that my time was really limited, I think I would just write full time and be with my family. And so those are the sorts of things that I, that run through my mind often. Which is great. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole point of this, right? So that you, you know, um, frequently kind of check yourself in terms of where you're spending your time and how you're prioritizing and, um, that's the that's the point. Um, it's what um, Sister Alethea would say. That's what memento mori is. It's uh, it's having something. You know, um, she has a lot of skulls around, um, but having something that is a visual trigger to remind yourself that life is finite, and we all have a terminal illness called life, um, and we just it's not a matter of if it's it's when and if today were to be your last day how would you live it um because none of us know and you know is there anything else that or one thing that you wish people um people knew or if there was one one thing that you could shout to the entire world um what what would it be I think cultivate kindness for yourself and towards other people. Cause I don't think that, I think that's has to be an intentional practice. I don't think people are necessarily born with that innate ability. And I see examples of that every day. And so I think if we cultivate kindness towards ourselves and others, I think our world would be very different if we each made that small, like a series of good decisions in that regard, maybe our planet would be a much more pleasant place to be. Okay. So if you really want to maximize your moments, you could pitch in and help us get the word out. Just rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That's it. Oh, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss future episodes and bonus content. For more motivation, head to notimetowasteproject.com or join the squad on Instagram at no time to waste project. Grazie mille.